invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. The Gospel of Luke chapter 10. As you're doing that, just one announcement given to me that uh, there will be no college and career group tonight. No college and career group this evening. Luke chapter 10, as we are uh, continuing through Luke's Gospel, we are looking this morning at verses 17 through 24. Jesus has sent out the 72, and uh, this morning we're going to see their return, their enthusiasm, their excitement, and Jesus' words to them. Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin with verse 17. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's ask the Lord to bless. Well, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you speak today through the word that you've given to us, and we thank you that the Spirit has been poured out so that we might hear And so we ask, O Father, that you would bless your children with the word of Christ in the presence of the Spirit, that we would be fed and transformed, encouraged, built up, convicted. Lord, whatever the work is that needs to be done, Father, do it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning is about joy. Uh, If you were reading along with me, you heard that theme coming uh, through again and again. The the 72 disciples rejoiced as they returned from their mission trip. Jesus uh, rejoiced over the Father's sovereign self-revelation to the little children of the world. And then Jesus uh, talks to his disciples about their blessedness, their happiness, because their eyes have been able to see what they are seeing. It's a text that's resounding with exclamations of joy. I'm fascinated by that reoccurring theme in the uh, scriptures, the the thread of divine joy that runs through and repeats itself like a musical theme in a symphony. Just this week, I was listening to um, Beethoven's Ode for Joy. We know joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Great song. And you got the the timpani just beating out uh, the beat. There were 10,000 voices singing Ode to Joy. It was a magnificent experience. And uh, those themes reappearing and reoccurring and thundering through, that's what joy is doing in the Bible. It's this ever-present theme, this pulsating drum beat and the resounding chorus that's running through the symphony of God's redemptive story. 
Now, for some of you this morning, a sermon on joy maybe just um, doesn't thrill you this morning. It doesn't seem to fit with where you are in your life right now. It doesn't really mesh well with your soul sadness or blend with your soft cynicism. It doesn't seem to, to fit well with maybe the weariness of heart that you have today. But I want to encourage you, what if God knew exactly what you needed today and what if God was desiring to be at work this morning to draw you into the exuberance of heavenly things? What if God was desiring to meet you exactly where you are today and to draw you into the blessedness of his love and the happiness of the gospel? As C.S. Lewis once said, joy is the serious business of heaven. It's what God's about. And so this morning, Jesus has very encouraging words to say to us as, as he speaks to us through his word. He wants us to know about the joy of the gospel. And so we have first the joy of the 72, and then the joy of Jesus, and then the happiness of those who see the truth of God in Christ. Let's look first then at the joy of the disciples. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They uh, excitedly gather around Jesus. Apparently there was an appointed time and place uh, and when he sent them out. They were going to come back and meet, and now they have, and they are overflowing with joy. It's easy for us to maybe imagine that joy as they were able to do amazing things. They're, they're sent on this uh, mission impossible, right, by the power of Christ, they're able to do astounding things. In Matthew's gospel, we read that when Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, he gave them this mandate, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. Your mission should you choose to accept it. How in the world are you going to do that? Through the power of Christ? through the authority of Jesus. It's an astonishing mandate for mission. And as the 70 do come back, they are delighting in exactly the fact that they are just ordinary people who've been able to accomplish extraordinary things as they went about the mission that Christ gave to them. They had the joy of seeing the power of God at work in the real lives of real people as they proclaimed the kingdom had come. They saw good overcoming evil. They saw life overcoming death. They experienced the power of God beating back the power of the evil one. And they had the joy of being involved in something so much greater than their own little life, something vastly more significant than their own circumstances. They are caught up in this great saving mission of God through Jesus. It's incredible what they were able to experience. However, they're not just rejoicing in what they were able to do. They're rejoicing in the name through which they were able to accomplish these things. They recognize, don't they? It wasn't their power. Lord, the demons are subject to us in your name, in your name. Only by virtue of the power of Christ and the authority of Christ were they able to accomplish these things. 
They have no power. His is the kingdom. His is the power. His is the glory. They just get the joy of participation. And so that joy of participation would also be blended with gratitude. Who were they? Can you imagine? These were just normal, ordinary folk living their normal, ordinary lives. And, and then they had heard about Jesus, and they'd come to believe in him, and they had... Uh, uh, begin to follow him, and Jesus had sent these ordinary people to do these extraordinary things. Who were they? That they should bear the name of Christ, that they should be enabled to participate in God's gospel mission. It's astonishing. They're full of gratitude. I love what G.K. Chesterton says, gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. That good gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Why should we get to participate? You see, this is always the case for Christ's disciples and for Christian ministry. There's nothing more exciting than to find yourself being caught up in this great story, to find yourself being called to follow Jesus Christ and, and that it is God's will to use you ordinary you in extraordinary ways as you believe in Jesus Christ, as you seek to love in Jesus' name, as you maybe speak the truth of his message. One of the great things about going on a, a mission trip, VBS maybe, uh, or go to Chattanooga, go to Haiti, uh, go to Zambia, one of, the, one of the joys is that you're taken sort of out of your normal circumstances and, and focusing for that time on specific mission as a Christian, as someone carrying the name of Jesus. And it's a joy to minister to people's real needs in the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't the, isn't the joy of Christian mission, not just that you get to do unusual things and experience, uh, have different experiences. The joy is that as you give that cup of cold water in Jesus' name, as you speak the gospel message in Jesus' name, Jesus is being magnified. That's the joy of it. That's the joy of these 72. And that with, again, right, gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. We have the same experience. Who are we that we should have the name of Jesus? Who are we that we should be enabled to love in, in difficult circumstances, rejoice when there's grief? Who are we that God should give us the power to accomplish things we could never do in our own strength? All the glory, all the power, all the authority, it all belongs to Jesus, but the joy of participation rightly belongs to his disciples. I hope you know a sense of what that looks like, even in your home, even in your marriage or in your friendships, even between uh, just relationships between moms and dads and kids, that, that you're experiencing the freedom to do the extraordinary in Jesus' name. Well, Jesus confirms their accomplishment when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's a wonderfully affirming thing to say, isn't it? He, he, he affirms the significance of their, of their mission, these ordinary believers, as they proclaimed the kingdom of God, as they engaged in the effects of the curse, as they, as they engaged the forces of evil, casting out demons. Things were happening in the supernatural realm. This wasn't just... Um, just a nice social event that was taking place. There were things happening in the heavenlies. The kingdom of God is advancing. The gates of hell could not stand against it. Jesus himself, of course, 
is going to cast the devil from the throne and did. Jesus is the one who's going to crush the serpent's head and did. But the disciples once again get the joy of participating in his victory. And it's a wonderful thing to know that our obedience and our sacrifices that we make in his name and the victories that we gain by his power matter. It's not insignificant. It matters. We are being caught into God's mission as he makes everything new in Jesus. Now let me just quickly hit verse 19 because there's some, it could easily cause confusion. Some have taken that verse where Jesus says, You'll, you will... Um, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And some have taken that literally to mean that we should be handling snakes and stepping on scorpions as an evidence of our faith. There are um, some believers who, who believe that, unfortunately. Uh, I think the context clearly, clearly, clearly shows Jesus is not encouraging a snake handling ministry in your local church. Thankfully, I don't like snakes at all. So what's he talking about? Well, look at the context. He just saw, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What is Satan known as? The great serpent. He's talking about the devil. He's, the scorpions are almost undoubtedly his minions, his, the demons. And the victory, then, you see, is a promise of victory and security over the devil. The devil is not going to reign over us. We have victory over him and his forces. Every believer has that by virtue of their union with Jesus Christ. Every believer is able by the power of Jesus Christ to resist the devil, to oppose the devil, to make the devil flee from you. We're not subject any longer to the power of evil. We can deny his desires. We can resist his temptations. We actually can. We have Christ's power and authority to say no. To, to the devil, and yes to Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, nothing can hurt or harm us. Now, what does that mean? The 12 disciples are almost certainly going to be martyred. Best we know, most of them, almost all of them were. Paul talks about God's people who, are, who live and are put to death like sheep to be slaughtered. So does this, this cannot mean that nothing physically bad can happen to us, that there won't be any trials, there won't be any, any grief. But what, but, but what he's saying, what Jesus is saying, is nothing can harm us. You see, again, Jesus looks at things from an eternal perspective. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. The devil can do his worst, but nothing can take us from God, and therefore nothing can do eternal damage or harm in any way. In fact, every trial, every heartache, every difficulty, every death that we experience in this life is increasing the life we get in the, in the world to come. And so Paul can say confidently, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The devil cannot harm us. He can do his worst. He can't take us away from Jesus. And so Jesus in verse 20 then says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's not trying to say, well, uh, your mission trip, I mean, it was nice, but it's no big deal. Don't get so excited about that. It's, he's not trying to dampen their joy. What he's, what, he's, what he's saying is rejoice in the deeper truth. Rejoice in the, the greater truth, the God-enacted truth unchangeable truth that your name has been recorded in the book of life. We read about that book in, uh, in, throughout Scripture, actually. 
But Jesus' words here are, are important. Let me just point out two things. One thing that we should take from Jesus' words here is that it's, it's possible to experience success in ministry. It's possible to have religious experiences and not have your name written in the book of life. Judas Iscariot undoubtedly went on the first mission trip, was able to experience the joy of that, and yet Judas Iscariot was not saved. Uh, we read in Matthew where people will come to Jesus on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, um, remember what we did? We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did mighty works in your name. And Jesus will say, I don't know you. Depart from me. So, so this is a warning on the one hand. Don't settle for just a religious experience. The question to ask is, is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? Is it there? Because nothing is more important, secondly, nothing is more important than having your name written in the book of life. And again, we read of that book throughout the, the Bible. Moses talks about it. Daniel talks about it. Paul speaks of his fellow Christians as, quote, those whose names are in the book of life, Philippians 4.3. The author of Hebrews speaks of believers as those who are enrolled in heaven, Hebrews 12.23. In Revelation 13.8, we read that everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life is lost. It's, there's just absolutely nothing, nothing that matters more than this fact. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Riken points out that Jesus' audience would have been very familiar with the idea of a book of, like this, uh, where your name is enrolled. Kings of those days would keep just such books. It was, Reckon says, deeply rooted in the culture of the ancient Near East. Kings would want to know who's, uh, everyone who is a citizen, and citizens, therefore, uh, have the privileges and the protection of the king. And if you're not a citizen, you don't have the privileges and protection of the king. Reichen says, what then does it mean to have our names written in heaven? It means that the high king of heaven knows and remembers that we belong to him. It means that we have a right to all the privileges of heaven even before we arrive. And it means that we have God's own guarantee of eternal life. Jesus says, of anyone who trusts in his righteousness, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels, Revelation 3, 5. I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. To have your name written in the book of life is the most glorious thing that could be true. And to not have your name written there is the most awful thing. But if your name is written there, you see all the privileges of Christ then belong to you. They're, there, they're yours by right. Forgiveness of sin justified freely by grace. The promise of being sanctified. You ever just wonder, are you ever going to get there? Are you going to make it? If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you're going to make it. Jesus is going to assure you of it. You will be ultimately glorified magnificently and reign with Christ. Incredible blessings. If your name is written there, you're a beloved child of God. You're a rightful heir to the glories of heaven. And that is the joy, friends, that is the foundational joy that will sustain you and be the foundation for you in all the trials of life. The trials of life are hard. Sometimes they're desperately hard. 
But if you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and that your heavenly Father is ordaining all things and He's doing it with the same love with which He sent His Son to the cross, if you know that, you have a foundation to stand on, you go trust Him even in the hardest things. And you can experience joy even in the most heartbreaking circumstances. So Jesus says, rejoice over this. Your name is written in the book of life. And then Jesus rejoices in that same hour. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. If you've read the Gospels, you realize that the Bible doesn't talk often about Jesus' emotions. doesn't mean he didn't have any. Of course he had emotions. He's a man like us in every way. But the Bible doesn't speak often of his emotions, and so it's significant when it does, and it's particularly significant here because the word that Luke uses for joy is the word for the most intense joy. It means exuberant ecstasy, to be extremely joyful, overjoyed. It's, it's the joy that a person, uh, maybe a sports fanatic, feels when, when his team wins the championship, whatever it might be. And if you're really a, a, a big sports fanatic, you know what that's like. When, when your team does the impossible, um, well, you know examples of that, right? But when grown men just jump like foolish little kids and, and, and shake their fists and shout and hug each other in embarrassing ways, right? You, you, that's what happens when you get overtaken with that kind of joy. Well, that's, that's the joy Jesus is experiencing. He's ecstatic, euphoric. He absolutely delights in what he sees. He's thrilled with what he sees. He's so full of joy. Well, what does he see? What does he see? Well, he sees the wonderful sovereign grace and wisdom of the Father who would call these ordinary little children to belong to the kingdom, have their name written in the book of life. Jesus rejoices, notice, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus delights in seeing God do as he desired to do. You see, in, the, in American psyche, there's a, there's a sense that that God um, is good when God is operating as we think he should. And that when God steps out of the lines, when God does things that we did not expect or, or contrary to our uh, desires, particularly when God does hard things or things that we can't understand, we just, it's hard for us, for us to be comfortable with that. In the Bible you'll find that at the heart of the glory of God, the fact, the glory of God being God, not a man, the glory of God being God is that he has the sovereign freedom to do as he wills. That he has the freedom to choose whomever he chooses, to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And so Jesus, you see, is delighting in the sovereign freedom, the sovereign right 
of God and the sovereign wisdom of God in exercising his freedom in such a way that brings the most joy to man and the most glory and exaltation to God. That's what's going on. Why is he so excited about the Father hiding these things from some people and revealing these things to other people? We would look at that and say, well, that doesn't seem fair. How is that, how is that fair? Just because you're bright and, 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 and beautiful and wise and learned and What's with that? Well, let's just pay attention to what that is. See, Jesus is saying, Father, I thank you that you've hidden these from the wise. And what he means is those who think they're wise, those who consider themselves the learned, the educated, the, those who have the insights into uh, spiritual truths or philosophical realities. And, and so the, those who consider themselves the elite of the world and, and the rest of the world would say the same. That they would know these are the beautiful people, these are the gifted people, these are the able people, the, the smart people, the accomplished people. And Jesus is delighting that the Father has not chosen them as a class, but that the Father has chosen as a class the insignificant people. The little children of the world, the people that don't matter a hill of beans, the people who are never going to make the headlines, the people who uh, the rest of the world looks at and maybe pities if they notice them at all. People like Mary. Here's this peasant girl from Nazareth. You could not be more of a nobody than Mary. And God chooses her to bear his son. People like Anna and Simeon in the temple. Nobody really cared about these old people. People like the 12 disciples, these fishermen, tax collectors. Just, I mean, really ordinary people and, and below. You see, Jesus is delighting that the Father has chosen them because it most magnifies the, God, the grace of God, the reality of grace. Jesus is he's rejoicing, you see, because if it were otherwise... If the Father had chosen the wise as a class, if, he, if his intent was to choose the, the beautiful people, the gifted people, the, the articulate, the unusually bright, God's glory would have suffered. Because the, the glory would have gone to the chosen, as it always does in that same, right? Then people would look and say, oh, yeah. Look at those impressive people. No wonder God chose them. I mean, look at them. They're beautiful. They're able. They're moral. They're worthy. God's just doing what we would do. Praise be to these impressive people. Well, that robs God of his glory. That undermines the reality of grace. You see, grace is unmerited divine favor. Unmerited. Grace is God doing magnificent things in showing incredible favor and kindness and mercy and compassion to the people that we would say don't deserve it. The unworthy. That's what Jesus means by the little children. He delights in the way that God is magnifying the glory of his grace by choosing the undeserving and the insignificant, the unworthy, unnotable, unimpressive, because in that act, God's grace looks magnificent. It's awesome. Nothing, you see, so magnifies the beauty, the glory of the grace of God 
than when he shows his eternal favor and kindness to the least deserving, to Matthew the tax collector, to Mary the former prostitute, to the demon-possessed, the failures of this world. His grace is magnified. His grace is manifested in choosing the unworthy people like you and me to be his children and to be his ambassadors in this world. You see, so Jesus is just, he's delighting, rejoicing. Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 11 as he explains the gospel. And particularly, he's just dealt with the doctrine of election, that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will pardon whom he will pardon. And who will say to God or call God to account? Who's been God's counselor? To whom uh, does God owe a debt that he should repay him? Oh, the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul exalts in exactly the same way. And friends, Jesus delights over his church. He exalts over his church, not because we are impressive people. We are not impressive people. He delights over the church because the church magnifies the grace of God. We are every one of us a testimony to grace, to favor we do not deserve. And evidences of God's power in the middle of all of our weakness. See, God gets the glory then. Jesus delights in it, and we should do exactly the same. And Jesus then finally speaks of the blessedness of those who see these things. Notice he says in verse 22, again, a hard saying for people who don't delight in God's sovereignty. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. They have intimate, inter-Trinitarian knowledge of one another. The only ones who know the Father and the Son are the Father and the Son and, praise God for that word, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So in short, Jesus is saying no one knows the Son except that God takes the initial action. God reveals himself. God opens the eyes. And if God does not do that, you won't see the Son. You won't see the Father. Unless God takes the initiative. But praise God, he does. He delights to take the initiative. And so turning to his disciples, he said, Privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, prophets and kings desired to see it, but did not see it, and longed to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. Blessed, the word means how happy, how how magnificently good God has been to the eyes that see Jesus and hear his message of salvation. How joyful the eyes that see in Jesus the grace of God for sinners and the redemptive purposes of God for this lost world and the first fruits of God in Jesus, the first fruits of everything being made new. How happy those who realize in Jesus that the notes of their insignificant life has been caught up in the symphony of God's redemption. Your life matters if you are in Jesus Christ. It matters magnificently as a testimony to the grace of God, to the power of God and the purposes of God. We just need to see it. We just need to see There's a magnificent story. I'll wrap up with this. Back in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter. Six, remember the story, the king of Syria is at war with the king of Israel. And every time he makes a plan to go attack here or there, he gets there and he finds the Israelite army saying they're waiting for him. So he says to his officers, okay, which one of you is fighting for Israel? And one of the guys says, sorry, my lord, uh, it's not any of us. 
It's the servant of God, the man of God, Elisha. He knows what you're doing in your bedroom. So the king of Syria um, decides to take out Elisha. So they go and they find him. He's at Dothan and they surround the town. And we read in 2 in Kings, Kings 6, the servant of uh, Elisha gets up in the morning and he walks out on the porch and stretches and sees all the army of Syria. And the servant said, we read, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And, and you can imagine this servant looking around. And then Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Friends, maybe this morning you have a hard time seeing. Maybe this morning the... the the things that you see as you came in the door this morning were the trials that you've been through, the failures that you've experienced, the heartaches. And maybe your, your heart is saying what the servant just said, alas, what shall we do? It seems just too much to bear. Or maybe you came in today and your eyes could only see the pleasures of life, you your, your eyes are full of the responsibilities of life, hobbies, work, family, and that's just all you see. If someone would ask you, what, what, what do you see with your heart? That's, that's what you see. Friends, Jesus' prayer for you this morning is what Elisha's prayer was in 2 Kings. His desire is that you see, that you really see that you see the reality of the horses and chariots of God which surround you in Jesus Christ. That you realize that incredible, glorious things are true of you in Jesus Christ. You are not a victim of circumstances. You are not just a creature that is doing the best you can, making your way through this world as best you know how. You are a child of the King. You are a son of the Father. You are an heir of everlasting life. The Holy Spirit himself has been given to you to lead you, to guide you. All the promises of Scripture are yes to you in Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ. And maybe some of you today need to deal with that. Maybe some of you today need to see the fact that you are in sin, you are in unrepentance, and it's time to wake up. It's time to repent. It's time to come to Jesus and confess the truth of your sin, the reality of the fact that you deserve to be condemned, and that you have no hope of ever having your name in the Lamb's book of life unless Jesus writes it there with his own blood, and you're going to plead that. And maybe today is the day where you need to deal with the Lord Jesus Christ about the fact of your sin. And if that's you, then I, I just plead with you, don't put it off. It's not something to deal with tomorrow. You can come and talk to me. You can talk to anyone here in this church. You can get on your knees at home and confess the truth of your sin, ask the forgiveness of God, and commit your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your King. And the Bible promises you will be saved. That's the beauty of the gospel. And maybe some of you just need to see today. You need to see 
with the eyes of faith that no matter how hard the road might be and no matter how weak you feel, God is with you and his grace is sufficient for you. And the reason you can know that to be true is because there is a cross where Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, went to purchase your redemption and your sight. And so the Bible says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. All the treasures of the wisdom and the grace and knowledge of God are found in him. Fix your eyes on Jesus so that the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Fix your eyes on the one who loved you and gave himself for you and loves you to the very, very end. Fix your eyes on him, friends. As you come to him day after day in faith and repentance, you can know that your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. So fix your eyes on him. Pray that God gives you the sight to see him. Pray that God gives you the ability to see Jesus so that Jesus becomes your deepest, your truest, your everlasting joy. May Jesus be your joy. Amen. God in heaven, you know us. Again, Father, we come to you. and Oh, Father, I thank you that you intend magnificent things and you've done marvelous things in Jesus Christ for sinners like us and there's no reason that we should be lost. Why should we die in light of such a great salvation and yet, oh God, we will be lost unless we respond. And I just pray that, Lord, any here this morning who have just don't know if their name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that they would come to faith in Christ and repent and see him as their only hope. Father, oh God, give the grace to change a heart. Give the eyes to see spiritual truth, ears to hear the wonder of the gospel and the the desire to respond in faith. And Father, for those who who are your children this morning and are just struggling in life, oh God, give us the ability to see Jesus to see that he's for us, to see that he loves us, to see that he walks with us by the Spirit, to see that he's at work. He has caught us up into his great salvation. And the notes of our life have become part of the symphony of your redemption. All to the praise of Jesus. Oh God, do these miraculous things in our day for your name's sake. Amen.